from a human perspective, that makes things much scarier um, because, you know, nature is, is nature wants to go. Uh, it wants to be burning because those plants are going to do better if they have a fire exposure from time to time. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Tyler Cross, who is a prescribed burn crew member for an international nonprofit that works in land conservation. So the nonprofit that Tyler works for works to um, like buy up large pieces of beautiful natural land or struggling pieces of natural land and try to restore them to their former beauty. Um, They work with the water table, the wetlands, um, the the land like plants animals anything that you can think of in nature they work to try to help these areas so one of the things that they do to help is they do these prescribed burns that tyler does so um back in the day when i was growing up it was sort of thought that we needed to prevent fire at all costs like you all remember Smokey the bear who's still around and Smokey the bear is a very good thing you shouldn't just go like setting the forest on fire by yourself or anything but we used to always try to put out fires immediately um, even in big open areas and something that we've learned is that fires can actually be very helpful for the natural world and that historically speaking um, fire is a, a, a pretty normal thing for nature and some plants and animals really flourish when a a fire comes along from time to time. Uh, additionally, and this is is pretty important right now with what is going on in my home state of California, having a fire come through an area from time to time will eliminate some of the uh, just brush and uh, like pine needles, leaves, really easily combustible things that just start to sit across the floor of the forest or just natural areas that would make a fire spread much more quickly and become a much bigger problem than if they were not there, than if we kind of just burn these up quickly in a controlled manner and then put them out and didn't allow the fire to spread. So as I said, right now in my home state of California, um, there are multiple fires going on in Southern California, um, including one in in a city that I grew up in called Ventura. Uh, This has been a really terrible year for California wildfires. I think you all probably remember the fires in Napa and Sonoma and a lot of people's homes in that fire and in the ones going on in Southern California right now have been burned up. So um, although it is not something that Tyler does, he is obviously fairly qualified to um, be able to talk about this. So tangentially, we will talk about what would a controlled burn look like near an urban area Um, or a suburban area, can we do controlled burns in areas like this? Would that help? Would that help these fires from spreading or being as severe as they are? Um, And then obviously we will do a lot of talk about the exact work that Tyler does and how these fires are helping the the natural world. So without further ado, here is Prescribed Burn Crew member. Tyler, thanks so much for coming on the show today. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should just start out with why the heck do we burn land on purpose? Like, why would that ever be a good thing to set land on fire? All right. Well, yeah. Um, so there's a couple of reasons why we do this. Um, so 
So my background is very much in ecology and environmental protection. And so I always mention that the, uh, the environmental reason for burning land is what I go to as my first and foremost. Um, however, really, there, there's, like I said, there's, there's two answers. Uh, there's the environmental side, and then there's uh, simply the, the land and infrastructure protection side. Um, and so on the environmental side, what we're trying to do is restore or preserve habitats uh, of which fire has been a part for a long time. Um, and on the protection side, we are attempting to remove fuel and uh, prevent uh, catastrophic fires from taking place. Okay, interesting. So that second one, you're, when you're saying remove fuel, do you mean like brush and things like that that would ju- that would very easily catch fire? So you would rather be the one to light it on fire rather than it be some sort of accident? Exactly. So, uh, you know, in, in the course of just the normal way an ecosystem functions, leaves fall off of trees, branches fall off of trees, shrubs die, the undergrowth eventually sort of piles up. Um, and in doing so, it produces just a tremendous amount of carbon builds up at the forest floor. And eventually, if that happens for long enough, you get what we call a horizontal fuel layer, where there is a leaf touching a leaf all the way across the, um, the forest floor. Um, and if, for instance, a, light, a lightning hits a tree, or if someone drops a cigarette, or if a campfire goes over, or if a train sparks uh, nearby, then you'll have the ability for the fire to just travel along the forest floor or through the prairie or whatever habitat you might be in. Um, so by doing prescribed burning, um, so under controlled circumstances, we can remove most of that fuel. Um, and by removing so much that, that much of that fuel, we basically make it so that those larger fires simply can't happen. Right. Um, so then it's just it's dirt, dirt and soil on the ground. Happen, yeah. Yeah. Well, dirt, dirt and soil, even just not having it be everywhere. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's not such a big deal if, if, uh, if lightning hits a tree and it lights the tree on fire and the fire sneaks down to the bottom of the tree and it kind of worms its way around, but eventually it's going to hit a place where there's nothing more for it to burn and it'll just go out. Um, and that's fine. That, or at least, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that, that happens constantly. Um, and it's okay. From an ecological perspective, that's kind of as designed. And from a land protection uh, perspective, well, you send a firefighter to check on it, but then it's, uh, it's not a big deal. The fire has put itself out or it's very easy to contain. What would be bad is if a lightning strikes a tree and then it just goes um, and there's nothing to stop it, but maybe a highway or uh, or a desert. Right, right. So I am from Southern California. I've lived the majority of my life in California. I, you know, and currently as we speak, there are so many wildfires raging in California. And just recently there was the one in Napa. I mean, this is like the worst year of fires in the state that I can remember. And I recently as an adult have been thinking about that and i'm just like you know because these all occur during the summer months or like right now it's it's the fall and uh there's not there hasn't been any lightning or anything so i was just like these are all man created right like like on accident you know like somebody had to be careless for this to happen like somebody flicked a cigarette somebody like knocked over a thing of gasoline or god knows what right or or am i thinking about that wrong are there ways that when it's just uh, like 100 degrees out and it's a hot day all of a sudden there's just like spontaneous combustion on the uh on the ground um i can't speak to spontaneous combustion um however i can speak to you know while there may have been a lightning strike can light a tree on fire that can smolder for months. Um, and so that's not necessarily what happens in California. 
uh, because it's very dry there and things simply go. Um, but down in the southeast, uh, it's certainly not impossible for a lightning strike in a wet environment to smolder for months on a time. And then finally, when conditions are right, turn into oh, yeah. uh, more Blow of an inverted situation. Um, that, that said, what we're seeing in California at the moment is, I, I, I don't know, I don't believe anyone has released what the probable causes of the current fires are. But you're right, there's not necessarily a lot of ground strike lightning going on in that area of California right at the moment. So that seems like it would not be as likely as an anthropogenic cause. Um, so whether that cause is you know, the motion of a train through an area kicking up sparks or a car fire, um, you know, you, 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 uh, you come sure across, what is it, the grapevine in California? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going up in the hills. And, and yeah, and I've, I've seen smoldering cars on the side of that road when I worked out in California. And it, these things happen. Um, and so fire can get introduced to the landscape through a, a great number of ways, uh, many of which yeah, are human caused, but not all. Um, and it's just going to depend on, I, I'm, I'm curious if people actually know at this stage what caused the current rash of fires, um, because there are a lot of potential causes out there. Yeah, it's sad and frustrating when you consider that, when, when you think about the uh, hundreds of thousands of acres that get burned and homes that get burned and stuff every single year. And that some of those could have been like, like what you're talking about, like a car breaking down on the side of the road and catching fire or something like I mean, that's a huge bummer for that person whose car broke down, too. But if someone just, like, flicked a cigarette out their window or didn't put out their campfire properly or something, it's just like, ugh, man. Like, the amount of damage that has now been caused because right. you didn't, like, take care of things, it's, mm-hmm. it's a bummer. Yep, and so I believe in, in most places that have, uh, really, anyone who where there's a national park of any sort, uh, you can often see a, a sign near the front of the car that says, you know, the fire risk level at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of when these, uh, you know, that, that thrown cigarette starts to become a, uh, a, a bigger problem. I mean, it's already a, a problem, obviously, but for different reasons. Um, and, and so in California at the moment, you have just your fire risk levels are so very high. Um, we talk in fire, we talk a lot about probability of ignition uh, as a function of weather. And so, you know, if you, you have a probability of ignition of 40%. Well, if you drop 10 matches that are lit and burning, the four of them are going to light something next to them on fire. Um, and, and so you kind of can extrapolate up from there on just how, how dangerous it can get yeah, uh, okay. in these dry ecosystems where there are, there's plenty of fuel in the ground and there are, uh, there are not necessarily um, environmental conditions that might stop. Um, or even completely on the other side, where most of California, the environment is primed to burn. It's not just because it's dry, it's because the, the plant communities that exist in California thrive in fire. Um, and so that, it, from a human perspective, that makes things much scarier. Mm, um, because, that's interesting. Because you know, nature, is, is, nature wants to go. Uh, it wants to be burning because those plants are going to do better if they have a fire exposure from time to time. Yeah, yes. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that, because I... All right, so to bring back your first answer, when I asked you why you're burning the land, you said that there's two major different reasons. One is to clear up the brush on the floor and stuff like that. Uh, the first reason, though, that you said was for ecosystems where fire would usually be there anyway. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're talking about a little bit with California. Um, what are ecosystems where fire would usually exist? How do we determine if an ecosystem is one where fire would usually exist? And then how is it that you guys are going about reintroducing fire to them? As in, like, how do you know when and where and all that to, to reintroduce it? 
Okay. Yeah. So, uh, first off, you know, I guess it was the first side of part of that was, uh, ecosystems where fire is known to exist. Um, and so I grew up not in California. I grew up on, in the, on the East coast. Um, and I did a lot of my college education and post-college work in areas where there are forests called pitch pine forests and pitch pine in specific are a species that requires fire in order to germinate. Their seeds simply aren't going to be viable without heat. Um, and so without fire, those species simply couldn't exist or they would be germinating so slowly that they would very quickly be taken over by other species that are better adapted for it. Nature's um, so incredible. So the, it's just crazy hearing yeah. things like that. It's, it's just mind, mind blowing. Like so, so cool. Yep. And so, so the, the thing like, um, similar to that, there are ecosystems, uh, for instance, in upstate New York, um, where there is a, uh, one of the last remnant of what's called a serpentine soil area. Um, where the soils are fairly toxic. Um, they have uh, metals in them that are, generally speaking, bad for plants. And so in these areas, you have incredibly specialized plant communities that can survive there. Um, and generally with, within, um, with plants, you know, you look at trade-offs in, in how they've evolved and how they exist. And so a very common trade-off is kind of a, reduce, a reduction of your overall competitive fitness so maybe you grow a little slower or you don't take in quite as much of the sun's light, but the ability to tolerate some condition that would otherwise be a really bad thing. Mm, and right. so plants that grow in these serpentine soil areas can tolerate maybe the low nutrient load and the toxicity of the soil. And on the flip side, they also can tolerate being burned. And they have to, in fact, because otherwise what would happen is if they didn't tolerate being burned or if fire was not something that was present in this ecosystem, then eventually more competitive species would, using the, the new soil created by the less competitive species, create a, a, an overarching, a bigger forest over top of it and just ignore the fact that the soil quality wasn't great to begin with by creating new soil. Mm. But because these species can tolerate fire, they can exist in this place that's just really on the edge of survivable for most species. Right. Um, and so the, the fire is this uh, kind of refresher and renewer in a lot of ecosystems where it, it just in the same way it protects the it, having burns to protect property removes fuel that also removes weaker trees or removes dead snags. It removes the layer of dead things from the forest floor um, that allows new germinations to occur. It, you know, it takes carbon and nitrogen that's stored in the leaf material and the small and smaller plants and returns it to the soil where it can be used for the uptake of new species, uh, new, new individuals coming up. Um, so, so fire as a refresher is a major part of, of these fire tolerant, uh, ecosystems. Um, now, how do we know so, so, yeah, what so these ecosystems are? Like, is the entire United States, to me, like with the way you describe it, it sounds like everywhere would be a fire friendly ecosystem. And like everyone could use a good fire from time to time just to freshen things up. But is that not the case? Like, are there some areas where fires are much more regular than others? Yes, uh, most definitely. And part of that is going to be due to the climate of the different areas. California, as an example, is dry for well, in recent history, it's just always dry. Uh, but, but historically, it would have been dry for, you know, the majority of the year with, with, a, with a short uh, but potentially intense rainy system to sort of refresh things. Um, and so drying out for eight months of the year is going to make it so that uh, fire is very likely, um, especially if, if when it starts getting rainy again, all of a sudden there are lightning storms. Um, and then uh, coastal areas, areas up in the northeast, um, the plain states where it's just grass for 100 miles in every direction. Um, these are areas where fire 
historically would have happened frequently. Um, and in fact, we know it happened frequently uh, due to a really cool bit of science uh, using. Um, okay, well, I'll show my East Coast roots here a little bit. Um, so, in the East Coast, uh, you know, uh, fifteen thousand years ago, all covered with like a quarter mile of ice up in the Northeast. Um, and then, as the glaciers receded, um, big chunks of that ice dropped into the, the soil, and many of them became, in fact, sometimes really massive ponds. Um, and those ponds are still in existence now. Um, and so, every year. Um, all the trees in the areas would uh, release pollen and the pollen would hit the surface of the pond and sink to the bottom of the pond. Um, and then it would create a layer on the bottom of the pond. And just like, you know, uh, archaeologists or uh, paleontologists dating bones by how many layers of sedimentary rock they're under, biologists who study this sort of thing can figure out what tree species were in an area based on the shape of the pollen uh, grains that are in, based on how far down the uh, a theoretical core of that lake's bottom are. That's awesome. Um, but the other thing they can do is they can look at that core and they can say, oh, here, look, there's a layer of ash. And they can figure out how many layers of pollen are between each layer of ash. And they can figure out how often the area around that lake would have burned. Mm. Um, and, you know, if, if you're looking at a thing that's a time span or a core that's showing a thousand years, you can actually get a pretty good idea of how frequently fire would have been in the area. Maybe not right next door to the pond, but in the area of the pond. Uh, and that has allowed us to, at least in some areas, uh, make a pretty, a pretty, potentially pretty accurate guess at how frequently fire historically would have been in the area, even if we have no actual records of it. So do you know off the top of your head in, in like that particular area that you're referencing, how often were fires like before there was any human contact in that area? Oh, the, 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 the human contact, you got you to gotta understand, is, is a very, very touchy thing. We don't know it, when humans were um, in the area? Right. Uh, so, so, well, we, we, have a, we have a couple ideas. Um, I think at the moment, uh, although there's, there's a couple little archaeological discoveries that appear to be casting some doubt on this, um, you know, current, current thought is that uh, the first Native Americans came here from Asia somewhere between ten and 13,000 years ago. Um, which would have been right in kind of the tail end of the last glacial maximum. Um, and so as the glaciers receded, they occupied more and more of North America because more and more of North America would have been habitable. And, um, and so there have been humans here since the glaciers were here. Um, and those glaciers in some places, especially in the North, basically scraped the earth clean when they uh, descended from the North. Um, and so there, would, there weren't any plants for certain people here, there were plants before the last glacial maximum, and then they all went away, and then they came back. Oh, um, right. As they, as they were basically locally extirpated by the wall of ice. Um, so the history and, and so of the plants with fire for, is it, it coincides with the history with people. Like, they, like they, they they aren't separate histories. They they did grow together. Yeah, at least at least in certain parts of North America, and not everywhere. I mean, because obviously the glaciers didn't go all the way to the equator; they went to you know, sort of like the Ohio River Valley and, and the northern states of the United States uh, were glaciated, but not all of them. Um, and so that sort of thing has, it, it muddies the water a little bit because, you know, what is natural without humans within an ecosystem that has really had humans on it for a long time. Um, and other continents have had humans for longer than North America have. And there is a ton of evidence that they were setting fires uh, in prehistorical periods. I wonder why. Like, do you think that they just intuitively knew the things that you're talking about? Like, hey, 
I kind of noticed that this pine tree doesn't seem to grow or, or like, you know, have new saplings unless it's on fire. I'm just going to create a fire here right now. Like, was it just a bunch of observation that made them make these fires or they, did they have their own reasons? What, what, what's the thought on that? Uh, yeah. I mean, pro- probably a little bit of both. I, I assume that it was an observed thing. Um, since fires are also a natural phenomenon, you know, it, I would be extremely surprised if the first fire that the uh, early uh, North American settlers would have noticed would have been one they set themselves. Um, but if they well, things they would have noticed in the immediate aftermath of a fire would have been a, you know, a flooding of herbivore species into the, the burned area as all the new growth, which is often highly nutritious and doesn't necessarily have all the defense chemicals uh, grown into it yet. Um, so deer and things are attracted to areas that have burned recently. Um, that is, uh, at least it's fairly well understood for Aboriginal folk in Australia to have done this, that sort of thing where you burn in order to in- attract game animals. That's so um, interesting. But also, yeah. But so, so beyond that though, you know, burning clears the underbrush. It's a lot easier to navigate when you can see your way around a forest. Um, it's a lot easier to camp when you can see your way around the forest. It's a lot easier to travel. It just makes everything easier if you live under the canopy of a continent-spanning forest, if you can at least see for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, yeah, like I said, the, the hunting thing, even absent the, the advantages that burning would give to an agricultural uh, group of people, there's still huge advantages to burning um, rather than not burning, where everything will slowly become, at least in my personal experience, a big nest of thorns and saplings that just make travel through the forest an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Now, other than people and lightning, is there any other way that fire can happen? Just to, just to readdress that question really quick. I just want to make sure that we have all the boxes checked in our minds of what can cause a fire. If it's not a person and it's not lightning, is there any other way for a mm-hmm. wildfire to break out? Like crazy high uh, temperatures, think- anything like that? Uh, crazy high temperatures alone without a spark event. So you can get, uh, you know, uh, on a sunny, sunny day in August, if you take a temperature reading of a pile of leaves that is um, in full sun, it might get to, uh, you know, somewhere, you know, over, well over 100 degrees very easily. Um, but uh, as one of the first people who uh, taught me about fire mentioned, is that you can always, you know what the flashpoint is for carbon even if you don't think you do, um, because of the Ray Bradbury book, uh, which is uh, Fahrenheit 451, which is the temperature that books burn at. Oh, right. Um, so think it needs to get to 450 degrees, or take, in order for a, a leaf or a book to catch fire. Um, and so a leaf, which might have a little bit of moisture in it, is considerably less likely to just go uh, without a spark, without something else along those lines. That said, lightning, if you ever look at a map of lightning, it's an incredibly common natural phenomenon. Uh, you can check out a uh, free online service like Wonder Map and things like that. You can see up to, up to the minute uh, lightning strike information globally. Um, and there's a lot of lightning. Um, but beyond that, there's also um, there's uh, to make a big thing that volcanoes <laughs> could theoretically cause mm. um, wildfires in downwind areas after that they uh, uh, in downwind areas downwind of an eruption. Um, I don't know of any other natural cause. I might think of something immediately after after this is over and be, be very embarrassed. But it's uh, at least in my experience, natural causes generally means lightning. It doesn't necessarily mean lightning right away. As I mentioned earlier, things can smolder 
I have heard uh, anecdotally at least about fires that, uh, you know, where the only potential cause of the fire would have been a lightning strike several months before, um, where there's just no people in an area at all. So it's not like someone's wandering in and lighting a fire. It's, it's, uh, it's like, wow, well, we did have a recorded strike, you know, three months ago, but we came and checked on it. There was no, there was no smoke. So we just walked away. And then three months later, Ooh, something happened. This is strange. Um, but other than that, no, it, it is a lightning caused fire is a, a fairly strong uh, signal. And then human caused fire is the other strong signal. Okay. So I would like to talk about this like philosophically with you for a second before we get into the nuts and bolts of what you do and how you do these burns and things like that. So you and I were talking a little bit on the phone yesterday and we were discussing the kind of natural order of things and stuff like that. And it strikes me that this is almost the opposite of that, right? It's like, so so the reason that we were talking about the natural order of things is that uh, we used to try to prevent fire at all costs. Like that used to be the prevailing thought um, with like the national park system and stuff like that. I mentioned to you like uh, recently going to Yosemite and having this big area of the park closed down because they were doing a control burn in there. And it's like, okay, we now understand that these control burns are good things to have happen. And we didn't used to understand this like, you know, 40, 50 years ago. We used to just think we have to keep everything from burning. Now, mm-hmm. we were basically, at that time, when we weren't allowing things to burn, we were manipulating nature more or less. We were like, we put it out. It just lit on fire. We got to put it out. We got to put it out. Like, let's say it did get hit by lightning or something. Yep. Now... I feel like we're still manipulating nature and is is that good and is that okay? Because you talk about bringing these um, ecosystems to kind of where they should be. Well, but you're the one doing that. Isn't the only way for the ecosystem to be the way it should be is by it getting hit by lightning or something? Like, aren't we still interfering with nature? And therefore, is there a chance that we're still kind of making a mistake because we're inserting ourselves in this process? Uh, short version, yes. Um, longer version is that you've you've uh, clipped into one of the big uh, sort of ethical things within conservation, um, and so there's sort of a uh, I don't know how widely accepted it is, but uh, at least for most people I have ever talked to and I've worked with, the the general feeling is that almost all ecosystems on Earth are in decline, and that is largely because of the impact that humans have had on the planet. And some of them might be in decline anyway. You know, it, that, that, that's actually part of extinction is a very important part of how life works on this planet. Um, however, uh, when it's humans that are doing the, uh, the impact of causing the decline, in general, we seem to feel as if we, it, we, it is our responsibility to fix it. Um, and now, so in some cases, you're, you're right. So the uh, ideal situation is we just stop suppressing fire completely. Um, and we just let lightning fires go. Well, we still have a problem because there's roads everywhere, and also there's houses everywhere and people everywhere. So, so say say we only put out fires that threaten property. That's actually this is this is an increasing way of thinking about things. It's, a lot of people are doing you know, wild wildland or what are, wildfire use modules where they are uh, using naturally caused fire to do their restoration for them. They just kind of watch it for a while, and if it if it turns in a direction they don't want, they put out that little part of it, and then they let the rest of it go. Um, but then there's also the, well, that's not quite fast enough. And we know that this area was burned more frequently than lightning alone is going to account for. So we should start it up. 
or there's roads everywhere. And so fire simply isn't going to cut across the entire area. You know, a, a lightning, uh, a lightning strike here might only burn a hundred acres before the roads around it put it out. And then what about this stuff that's 30 meters across the road? Well, that, that should also burn. Maybe we should light that on fire. Um, and, and so it's just the, the world we're, we're living is no longer really set up to allow nature to take its course. We, we've covered everything. Mm. Um, and so we, or at least the, the general prevailing ethic, is that we have to help it along a little bit. Um, and so we can recreate the conditions that would occur naturally, and, and ideally we should be recreating these natural conditions, um, in accordance with uh, a whole bunch of study on what the, what the uh, habitat should theoretically be. You know, if we weren't interfering, what would it look like? And let's, let's, let's try to make it that by, yes, interfering. Um, but if we don't interfere at all, and because our, our simple presence has already introduced so many factors into the equation, we can no longer be sure that it's going to self-right itself. Right. It's, it's going to, it's declining at this stage and it needs to be propped up a little bit. Um, and so there's, there's all sorts of, there's a, a whole book of terminology about this. And, you know, you just not like all these systems require input constantly. You know, if you, if you burn something once every five years, well, actually believe it, that might be enough. So you burn it once every five years and then the rest of the time you look at it, it's like, Hey, this is doing great. You know, we look at it. New growth here, and some of these old tr- trees have died, and they're turning into habitats for all sorts of birds and, and small mammals. And this is wonderful. And then five years later, you come back, it's like, okay, you know, by now something should have ripped through here, but nothing has, so let's do it. And you you light fire and you push fire through it again, and then you know it, it's back into a restored status. Um, so it's basically the best way to coexist. We don't we don't just think that it's the best way. Period. It's not like we're saying, oh no, we are going to almost do this better than nature could do it, or we're throwing nature a bone here, or whatever. But it's like it's being realistic about it. Like we have to coexist. Like we are here, so let's try to make mm-hmm. this safe for everyone and good for everyone. Exactly. So the idea, you no, know, we're we're going to do as best we can, and that's going to require um, some judgment calls on the on the behalf of the people who are making the plan. And that's, of course, where things start getting muddy, where you start wondering, well, well, obviously, I want this forest to exist here because, you know, it, it did at one point and it's rare now or whatever. So, you know, you're trying to keep an area to be a meadow and that requires a lot of fire, <laughs> um, but you don't have many meadows around um, because there hasn't been much fire. And it's not like you're going, you're almost never going to let a fire get hot enough to actually torch an entire hillside of trees. And so they all die and a meadow can form. You're going to keep the one you have around. Um, and so that gets difficult. It gets tricky. And, and the people who plan these things have to put a lot of thought into what the priorities for the ecosystem are, um, which gets into the whole concept of ecosystem services, which a, a huge topic about sort of, you know, uh, it, it probably puts the economic spin on environmental uh, science, uh, which is interesting in its own right, uh, but is a huge topic. The take home is really, is you know, the choices that are made to to choose how to conserve and what to conserve are going to be based on the, the land management priorities of the people who are doing the conservation planning. And some of those plant priorities might be to provide places for endangered species to continue existing. I mentioned those serpentine soils earlier. And one of the big reasons that they are protected so fiercely is because they are pretty much the only place in the entire world where the Carner blue butterfly still is able to breed. And my understanding is the Carner blue butterfly uh, breeds or lays its eggs exclusively on the blue lupin plant. And the blue lupin plant really only lives in meadows that have been burned fairly recently and in small slivers of them. So if we don't want that species to go exist, to, to go extinct, we need to 
continue to provide this ideal habitat for it to lay its eggs. Man, that's also um, interesting, Tyler, because it's like, again, uh, man, it, I, I don't know how I feel about any of this. It's like, I mean, I, it's like you feel good, right? It's like, okay, I were keeping this butterfly alive. But as you said, like, it's, it, extinction is, is a part of nature anyways. And it's like, who's to say that this thing wouldn't have naturally just gone away without us even being here? And now we are artificially keeping it alive I mean, then again, mm-hmm. we do well, that with, with human beings in hospitals and stuff. We, with, we're like right. in the business of keeping things artificially alive longer than they should be. And I guess yeah. we'll see going forward, like what the ramification is of this in, in all areas, in, in people and nature right. and everything of keeping things alive past when they should be. And especially there is a whole other topic with defects that are uh, the things we keep alive, the things that we are super passionate about keeping alive tend to be things like the Connor blue butterfly, which is absolutely adorable. It's like the size of your pinky thumbnail. Um, it's you know, very, very cute, but that is sort of the theme in the things that we keep alive. Um, and it's very easy to make a conservation plan to keep a cute endangered species alive. Um, although in fair, what you were saying earlier, uh, the Connor blue is, is endangered specifically because of habitat destruction at the hands of humans. So oh, it's a, well, that's there you go. Save. Yeah, that's, that's good. Like, <laughs> that one, that one is, there's very little like, Oh, maybe it was on the way out. It's like, eh, no, it was fine. And then we sort of paved <laughs> yeah. over everywhere it could possibly live. So, yeah, that's no good. Um, all right, Tyler, I would love to know a little bit about doing, uh, control burns in urban areas. So, um, you've talked about obviously because of the fact that you're a conservation worker, you I would imagine don't deal near urban areas as much. Like you're trying to make these biodiverse uh, like lands and and conserve these beautiful nature areas. But when you look at a state like California and what's going on there, um, I would love to know: Do they do control burns near urban areas? And if they do, how does that go down? Who does it? Um, how big are they allowed to get? And uh, as somebody, again, who's from California, like, why are they not doing that more frequently or something? Because I feel like a lot of these fires could be avoided if we were doing that more frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, um, well, I, 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 I talked to um, some coworkers of mine lately, sort of knowing uh, that you wanted to talk about this, uh, people who have much more experience on the specifically the wildland firefighting side of things. Um, and uh, combined with with the the bits of unforgiving, so so my specific experience is really very much on the prescribed fire side of things, and and from prescribed fire alone, I can give you a lot of reasons um, for for the, the trends in how we do these things, um, and then from what I picked up from the wildland folks, there's there's a couple things that I simply wouldn't have thought of um, that are very important for them uh, that that explain sort of of, of other aspects of it, um, but the big the big take home with prescribed fire is the, the first word in the name. Um, in order to do this, it, it's as, as cool as it would be to just jump out of a truck with a drip torch and start lighting things on fire because we know it's what needs to be done and just, you know, screaming lightning bolt the entire time. In <laughs> um, actuality, there's, there's a tremendous amount of planning uh, that happens beforehand. Um, there's planning just on paper for, you know, so you have, say you have 100 acres of, of uh, what you would like to be woodland. And so woodlands is, is sort of defined as uh, uh, a forest where there's actually good penetration of light to the understory, um, where trees are 
largely not small, so they're mostly full-grown trees, and there's plenty of room between them, and in fact, maybe using grass on the ground. Uh, sort of looks like, you know, the, uh, the truffle of forest from uh, uh, the Lorax. Um, and so, so you have 100 acres of something you would like to be woodland. And so, uh, don't worry, I'm getting to the, the urban uh, question, uh, <laughs> basically, in my explanation. Take I've not forgotten about that. But so, so in, in this 100 acres, you know, you want to apply fire to all 100 acres of it. Um, so you say you want between like 70 and 100 uh, percent fire coverage. And then you have a bunch of ecological goals that you basically list under that. So you want to kill or you want to remove most of the, the dead and downed uh, 10-hour fuels. So that's most of the, you know, the fist-sized uh, branches on the ground. You want those to be burned up because they're not helping anything. And you don't care so much about the 100-hour fuels. Those are the ones that are like the size of your torso that are on the ground. Um, but you don't want any of them to be burning around the edge. Um, and you want to top kill all of the small oak saplings in the area. So you say, you know, your goal is between 50 and 90% top kill of small oak saplings because you, they're, they're filling up the space and they're taking it away from being a woodland. You know, if fire was going through here regularly, they wouldn't be able to germinate at all. But, you know, you, you're doing the best you can by bringing it through semi-regularly. And, and that's, your goal is to eliminate them when possible. So now you have this big list of environmental goals. Um, and they're going to be based on what you think is possible and what your overall conservation plan for the area is, as we talked about earlier. And so now you have all your limiting factors. Um, so you look at what the weather is or what the fuel type is, and you're like, okay, so there is no way we can do this burn at all if there's lower than 40% relative humidity. So basically how wet is the area at the time? How much water is in the air? Um, because if it's lower than that, this fire might get too hot. And from an environmental perspective, that might mean it might torch some of the trees. But the bigger concern is that it might escape. It might get past your fire line. And that would be um, capital B bad. Uh, it's as in really not good, not something we want to happen. The whole point of these is that we can do them in this little box that we've drawn on a map, and they won't leave it. Um, and so you need to make sure that the conditions for the fire are precisely such that you can make you can guarantee that it'll stay in that little box. Wow, and in um, and lots of areas of California, it almost never goes above forty percent humidity. Exactly. So, so there's the first big issue with California. Secondly, um, so 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 say it's it's, it's below forty or above forty percent humidity. And, I, and admittedly, I took that number completely out of a hat. That uh, there's being wildly different depending on where you are in the country. Um, so, so but say you have that mix that done, and the next thing to think of is oh shoot, you know there's a highway. That's two miles south of us. Well, we can't have winds coming from the north because that'll send smoke across the highway. And that's going to be a, a danger to drivers. And also, it'll probably cause a lot, whole lot of people to panic, which we would prefer not to happen. Um, so that means if the wind's ever out of the north, you simply can't do it. That's another thing that you just can't do. Um, but even if you don't have the wind from the north, there are maybe 50 houses in the area. Um, and so this, this burn might be taking place in what we call the wildland urban interface area, where basically there's a, um, the houses are interspersed through the natural setting. And so at the very least, all of those people need to be notified that there's going to be a burn going on because the one, again, no panic. Um, but two, they, you should know if it's happening in your backyard. Many people would actually be really excited to find out because, you know, people who live in the woods are often going to be pretty psyched about the woods in general and want to see that their ecosystems local are happy and healthy. Um, but you do have to let them all know. And so you have to take into account that, you know, if your fire does escape, it might go onto private property, which would be bad again with a capital B. Um, 
And so there are you know, everything I've already mentioned. Then you have to take into account the topography of the area, what the, if the, what the fuel load is, how long it's been since you did the last one. If there's water in the area that you can easily draft off or if you have to bring all of your own. Um, and so there's just dozens of little factors that go into making these plans. And what it amounts to at the end is a tremendous list of things that has to happen before you can put a match down. Oh, I guess everyone uses lighters now. So before you can put the lighter. <laughs> yeah, um, before you get out that blowtorch. Yeah. Oh, we, we do get to use those on occasion. That's fine. Um, mostly, mostly it's, a, it's a mix of diesel and gasoline um, that we use to, to spread fire around. But, um, but, but it, so to sort of bounce this back to California, California is dry. It's really dry. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the fuel load there is designed to burn. You know, these, these, uh, these plants and animals are not designed. It, it has evolved to burn. Um, it has set itself up that the, these plants are habituated to fire and they thrive in ecosystems where fire is a component. And because of that, they may actually encourage it. They may drop leaves that have a higher oil component than would normally be the case. Wow. They may have bark that is able to slough off after a, a fire. They may, in some species in, I believe they're Australian. I don't think they're in America at all. But there are species where the, um, the, pot, the, the uh, not cones, but the seed pods explode violently when exposed to heat, launching the seeds uh, large distances. Um, so all sorts of little things that make it difficult. And so those things are all going to go into this theoretical burn plant. And so if you have a hillside in California that, oh, wow, you know, you're looking at it, it's like, you know what? Ignoring the environmental effects completely, it's just, it would be good for land you know, infrastructure protection if there was less fuel on that hillside. Well, you have a whole lot of limiting factors because you don't want it to escape because you've just made the problem worse. Um, and so my understanding is that, yeah, you know, it, they, get, they prescribe burn as much as they can in California. There are more firefighters in California or wildland firefighters in California than anywhere else. Um, and they're, I mean, you can probably start a, a bit of a flame war, but they are, you know, I personally have always heard that they're among the very best um, because they deal with it constantly because their state is just always burning. So there's always something for them to do. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, they, they may not be able to, there may never be a, there may not, you know, in a, day, a year like this, there may never be a day where they could safely enact a prescribed burn. Um, and that is very limiting. And other, of course, there's, there's other ways that uh, individuals can protect themselves from wildfire. Um, you know, I've mentioned removing fuel several times, and that can be done manually as well. Uh, we do remove fuel manually whenever we construct fire lines. Um, so when we're fencing, you're basically creating the boundaries of these prescribed burns. We go in and we cut down trees with chainsaws and, you know, remove underbrush. And then eventually we take leaf blowers and we blow away all the old leaves. <laughs> and so that there's just a strip of bare soil between the two fuel areas, between where we're going to burn black and where we're not going to burn the green side. Um, and that actually can be done without needing to have a fire around. So yeah. if you uh, remove, uh, there's a program called the FireWise program that is uh, widely used across the country. And it's basically, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of steps uh, by which you can reduce your home's danger or, or risk to wildfire. Um, and some of them are, um, pretty intense. I think you need something like, a uh, 30 meters between your house and the forest line. And you want to have like a, a, a entire meter of just rock ringing your house. Wow. Um, and 
there's these are these are difficult things to do, but they do dramatically increase your uh, your safety or the safety of the property. Yeah, I would imagine um, it's interesting hearing you mention that about you know it doesn't always have to be uh, fire. You know, you don't have to start a fire to to prevent fire. Uh, this past summer when we were in Yosemite, there were a bunch of trees with X's on them, and when we were out for a walk one day. Um, these people that were hired of all things by, I think it was Southern California Edison, who's like the electric company in California. And they were hired by the mm-hmm. electric company to go and cut down all these trees with the X's on them because they were all, uh, now full size trees, you know, that they've been monitoring that were growing over the past, you know, however long. And there were these full size mm-hmm. pine trees that were within tipping distance of an electrical pole. And it was like, if any of these trees, uh, were to fall. I guess it must have been older pine trees then that they thought were mm-hmm. were dead and had a had a greater chance of uh, of falling mm-hmm. onto one of these poles. So they were cutting down all the trees that were anywhere near a uh, an electric line, just so that would not yeah. you know be a thing that would happen. Because that because if a a yeah, if a high voltage line goes down, it's going to spark, and in a it that's just a bolt of lightning. And the voltage is a little bit lower, but it's pretty hot still. Um, and so yeah, that that's a. Uh, that's that's you know mitigation, especially trying to mitigate the anthropogenic causes, you know, the accidental things. You can't, you can't really stop lightning from happening, um, but you can stop silly things from happening that cause fires that could have been avoided. Right. Um, and you see you see puff pieces. Uh, actually, really, I, I think they're awesome. Where people, you know, neighborhoods get flocks of goats or hire you know you basically have a a goat herd wander around your property for a, a couple months out of the year just for the dry season to eat up a bunch of the vegetation that could burn later so great or you, i love that you know, yeah it's like that's adorable that's great what an awesome way of doing this and, and that you know the, the the goat herd um is unlikely to somehow turn into an inferno so uh, that's that's a little easier but yeah california is in an extremely rough spot they just they don't have a whole lot of good options out there all right so um, let's talk about the burns themselves um what they yeah. you know the wildland firefighters would be doing in california what it is that you do when you were doing a prescribed burn or a control burn um how how does one do this what are the tools that are at your disposal the first step is really that that conservation plan gets made and then after that conservation gets plan gets made individual prescri- uh, prescribed burn plans are made as well and those burn plans are generally speaking uh, approved by some government agency as valid and and, and safe um and then once those are all made um things kind of go into rotation so you know that prescribed burn plan i mentioned might say that this given plot should be burned every three years and so say on year zero i'm hired and 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 um we have to look at a map and this is actually kind of what my specialty in conservation is is i spend a lot of time doing mapping and conservation planning based on on maps i make um and so we look at a map and we say okay so we have this uh this hundred acres of say meadow uh, with some forest uh, mixed into it. And so uh, the plan might say, you know, it has all the restrictions of prescription that I mentioned earlier. Um, but then past that, uh, it won't have all those environmental goals. And um, what we do to enact it is to we, well, I guess, so we locate the unit and then we build a fire line around it. Um, and in some cases, that fire line might already exist. It might be a road that is, uh, you know, definitely existing. It may be a wetland that um, isn't going anywhere and it's nice and wet and will stop fire. Um, but in many situations, it's just, you know, this unit is just a patch of meadow that looks like every other patch of meadow. Um, and so in that case, uh, for like a grassland and habitat, we'll go through and someone will sort of walk in front and say, okay, well, there's no trees here. And they'll put down the chainsaw. 
Um, but they may find de- down trees or, or downed branches and they'll buck them up and they'll put them, generally speaking, outside of the unit, somewhere where they won't be a problem. Um, and then behind them will come, Wait, why would come you not, with a, a Why would you not want to burn the downed trees? I feel like that would be like one of the first things that you would want to burn. Well, I mean, you want to burn all the ones that aren't near the edge. If they're right near the edge, it causes a problem. And so you, you just don't want to, and so the individual prescription plan might call for you to actually throw them into the black, throw them into the area that's going to be burned. Um, but it might say, ooh, you know what? There aren't many heavies out here. And so for the sake of expediency, uh, because it's a meadow, for instance, we would like you to, to just remove, you know, if you, if you cut them while you're cutting the line, throw them onto the side that isn't going to burn. Um, and there's another reason for that is that partly it's good habit. Because as the next people come through who are using, say, weed whips and uh, uh, lawnmowers and leaf blowers, what you don't want to do is pile a whole bunch of that fuel right on the edge of the line, right where it's going to cure in the sun and then become explosively flammable, uh, where if the fire hits it, it could jump right across. Mm -hmm. Um, And so instead, you kind of scatter it elsewhere. You put it away from the place. And so now you have a box that is surrounded by... um, areas that are unlike where fire is unlikely to be able to carry across wait so i'm sorry i, I didn't so gather i didn't get the part of uh how you dig the line like what tools do you use oh. to dig this fire line so so, so there and it's actually a really uh, kind of a crucial difference point between wildland firefighting and prescribed firefighting digging line is something you do if you want to stop fire definitely but remember that my our, our one of our big goals on these on these uh events is environmental protection and environmental restoration. If you take a Pulaski or a council rake or any of the other kind of specialized firefighting tools that people use. Wait, I don't know what, e- sorry, I don't know what either of those things are that you just said. So explain what those are really quick. Uh, Pulaski is a combination sort of hoe and ax uh, named after, I believe the first head of the United States forest service, a uh, guy who used to uh, wrestle with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and the council rake is a, um, it's, it's like a five foot long pole with a bunch of triangular spikes on it. It's like a, like a hoe, but with triangular uh, teeth, um, which you can uh, use to sort of manhandle burning logs away from the edges or things. Most of the, most of the fire tools are sort of under-engineered, but extremely heavy duty. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's very sturdy things because you need to whack logs around. Um, but in both cases, those what, what they would really do um, is they would kind of scar the surface of the earth, which is, for the record, completely fine when you are trying to keep fire from burning up someone's home. You know, absolutely, completely. You know, put put a you know dig dig it into the ground, turn over the earth because mineral soil doesn't burn. Um, but if you are trying to just keep meadow habitat in existence so that nest, ground birds can nest, well, you know, you really don't want to leave these these scars on the earth that are going to last for years and years and years. I mean, it's already going to be apparent that you had a kind of lighter line there. Um, but for, for these sorts of burns, more often not. Now, the other side of it is that, uh, is that the prescription, that, that long document that we, you have to do before you do any of this, is going to say exactly what level of line is required. And so it might be that the prescription is going to require that you have a, um, you know, like an a eight-foot strip where it's just rock. Um, and so you have to remove everything but stone from the eight foot strip um, because the fire will get hot enough or will be pu- pushing towards that with such intensity that if you had anything flammable on that line, it would go. Um, 
And so do whatever the, the prescription says, you move for line, uh, you create that scenario. Um, in the fires that we're doing currently, a lot of what we're doing is we're removing um, heavy materials, removing lighter grasses and things like that. And then uh, we are in very rare cases, or in, in most cases, actually, we're, we're leaf blowing the area so that there's no downed leaves on the lines. And then in very rare cases, we're maybe digging into things. Uh, but that's that's uncommon. It's really just to fix problems that may have been may have happened. You know, we'll have to to pick up and move big logs that fell across the line and things like that. Um, but that's that's uncommon in established units. Okay, gotcha. So that's the the prep preparatory phase. So so now you have your box and it's ringed around with fuels that have been mostly removed, um, and so it's unlikely that fire will carry across those um, those lines. And then the next thing your prescription plan is going to tell you to do is it's going to tell you, okay, I'm just going to tell you all the weather conditions that you need, you absolutely need to have in order to carry out the burn. But then it's going to tell you kind of the basic strategy for it. And normally it's going to be something along the lines of, well, again, it's going to depend on what the goal is. But in standard parlance, fire burns uphill and downwind. Um, and so what, you, what that means is if you've seen some of the videos coming out of California right now, you can see you know, the flames sort of curled over, like almost like crashing waves and moving with the wind. Um, that happens on a prescribed burn as well. Um, normally, you don't want them to get that big. Um, but there is what we call head fire and backing fire. And in many prescribed burn applications, what we're actually using to do the burn is the, the aspect of the fire that is the backing fire. And so to guarantee that that happens, you go to the downwind side of the unit. So if the wind is blowing from the north, you go to the south. And you um, you light a small test fire just to make sure everything's happening as you believe it should be. Um, and the most common tool used to light the fires is uh, what we call a drip torch, um, which looks looks a little bit like a fire extinguisher, except it does the opposite thing. Um, <laughs> it uh, so so it's if you picture the sort of the um, the cylindrical tube of a fire extinguisher, and then on the top of it you put a a long tea kettle snout with a little loop in it yeah. and a wick at the end yeah that's basically a drip torch and you fill a drip torch with mostly diesel fuel with a little bit of gasoline in it for pep um and then you pour a little bit of it out onto its own wick and you light the wick on fire and then you can just you can basically carry flame around and with the drip torch and this little spout you can basically pour lines of fire um which is is wonderful for uh for Basically, most teenage boys, there's a, a certain thrill to that. Yeah, um, for sure. So you will, you'll, <laughs> so you'll test an area. So you'll, you'll do like a little area, mm-hmm. light it on fire. See, like, yes, this is in fact blowing to the north. It, it, it's like yep. not mm-hmm. going Everything's too happening crazy. as we anticipated. Especially if your conditions are sort of borderline. Um, generally speaking, you know, we, we don't, we wouldn't do it if it was borderline. No, like no, too, it's too dangerous. But very likely people would try to do if it was borderline like, oh, no, it won't burn. And so, you know, it's just too wet or, you know, it's overcast and this isn't going to work. And so you do the test fire just to make sure that, okay, we're, it's going to work. And more importantly, like, yeah, I'm looking at it and it's consuming enough of the underbrush that this will work. This will meet those environmental objectives we talked about earlier. And so once you've done that, you then uh, beginning and uh, again, this is going to depend heavily on the exact pers- the method of your prescription and what you're doing. But my, in my current uh, job, what we're doing mostly is we're ringing fires. 
And so two teams will split off and they will proceed at an even pace. So both going about the same speed up the two flanks of the fire. And so they don't go just go to the northern side of the fire and drop flame there because the wind would push it really, really fast to the south. And that would be bad because there isn't you know, a head fire might be able to jump that line. So instead, we'll work from the south to the north. And that means that those, the, the head of the flame, so if you, if you, you know, picture like blowing gently on a candle and watching it bend, that head of the flame is going to be sitting over top of fuel that is already burnt. So there's no danger from it inherently. Mm, Meanwhile, right, the, the, right. the backing aspect of the flame is going to be very slowly move forward. And as it, as it happens, because it's moving slower, it's going to consume more. You talk about when, when head fires move through an area, they frequently they don't consume everything. They consume many things, certainly, and they're very hot and they move really fast. But if you really want to, you know, if your goal is to kill all of the underbrush, you really want a backing fire to move through that. Or if you want to, for instance, you're trying to remove a specific species that you know has big roots, uh, you want to move the backing fire through it so that the soil gets hot and so some of those roots will die. Um, and so whether you're using a head fire or a backing fire is going to depend, again, on the prescription plan, just like everything else. Um, but so you slowly move forward along the two flanks. Occasionally, you'll drag a line of fire across the inside, uh, maybe a little bit ahead of where the fire is, and then the, the head fire will run straight into the backing fire, and it'll kind of make a big whoosh. Um, but it, it keeps things hot and it keeps things moving along. Um, and then you get to the edge of it. So now you have, say, if this was a 100-acre unit, 90 acres of it is already black, and most of it's probably close to being out already because it just had nowhere to go because it ran into the line and then there was nothing there. Um, and you sort of make a big ring around the last little corner, um, and then a head fire starts, runs straight into 90 acres of black, and goes out. And, and that's sort of the the almost magical thing about this is, is you know, uh, if you don't experience wildfire or prescribed fire, you, your experience of fire is you know campfires and things, and a campfire just sort of burns for a long time, and it gets slowly slower, smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and then dwindles. But these you know these larger fires, when they're out of fuel, they just extinguish um and you know the, the active flame front might only be a foot or two across and then it goes out um, because at the end of the day it's burning weeds <laughs> um and so it doesn't necessarily have to be you know it's not, it's not going to be burning for a long period of time or at least all of it's not going to be burning for a long period of time um and so then you know once once the, the fun part is done you then again refer back to your prescription and you look at the, the mop-up procedures and it says that you have to uh, have no nothing smoking within a chain of the fire line, and a chain is a um, still a kind of archaic measurement that is still used very aggressively within the fire community. It is, uh, I think, sixty six feet. Um, I I do not know the story behind it. I have been told the story behind it, and I promptly forgot it because it seems silly. That's um, great. I love industries that use some really <laughs> weird archaic word that it's like, why don't we just update this? But it's great. I, I love have, that. I have even I have even heard and I you know I don't know this it to be true, um but I've heard it said uh from people who were bitter about uh the whole chain thing that the use of the measurement chain is among the reasons that the United States did not adopt the metric system. Um I would, I'd, I'd love to know if that was true because that would be ridiculous beyond reason. But yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's 66 feet. I, I genuinely don't know why. Um, it's kind of embarrassing because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's explained in one of the books I was required to read for this job. And it's just, I, I know how much 66 feet is, is, is the short person. It, it, is, it is somewhat convenient um, just because since everything is measured in chains as far as speed as well, it, it does convert pretty well to minutes. 
in 66 and 60 are somewhat close. So if something is mm. moving at, you know, five chains an hour, it's actually pretty easy to figure out how many, uh, how many feet that's moving. Right. Um, or how many feet a minute it's moving. Uh, so, but that's neither here nor there. And so, so you spend the rest of the day or possibly the next two days um, hoofing around water, uh, if you're lucky, or just those tools I mentioned, if you're unlucky, and you put out every smoke, everything smoking, or definitely everything that it still has open flame on it within 66 feet of the line, if that's what yours requires. So some burn plans may require that everything be out. Um, and then depending on, on um, the risk level, you may stay a couple days there and keep on checking up on it. Or at least you may do drive-bys for the next two, three or four days until everything that's even deep in the interior is not smoking anymore. And then you call it, you know, out, contained and out. Um, and so that's um, sort of the, a very generic timeline. You make your plans, you construct your fire line, you do burn operations, and then you do mop-up. Um, and then if you're really lucky, you do fire effects monitoring afterwards where you go back you know, a few months later and you see what's growing up in the place and all these cool things that we wanted to see, are they happening and how are they happening? You know, have native birds returned to the area? Are there, you know, are the trees that we want to be flourishing actually flourishing? Um, did we fill prescription? Did we actually kill 70% of all of the greenbrier or whatever? Um, but yeah, so that, that would be the, the generic timeline. And then if the prescription calls for it, you do the same thing again in three years or five years or whatever. Gotcha. Now, Tyler, tell everyone about your lifestyle. Like, where are you right now? Um, what hours do you work? All that kind of stuff. Because this is not the type of job where you just wake up at seven, leave the house at eight, kiss your wife on the cheek, and then you come back at five o'clock that night and be like, wow, good day out burning stuff tonight, sweetie. Like, that's not that, right? No, no. Uh, maybe if I was like a manager, but, uh, but no. Um, it is, uh, so I live in Missouri at the moment um, in a town called Van Buren, which is um, it's actually a pretty nice town. It's a, it's a tourist destination during the summertime, but it is December when we're having this conversation. So it is pretty empty. Um, and that's fine because uh, as it happens, uh, most of the great nature, in this, not all of it, but most of the great nature in this country is pretty far from people. There's a whole lot of country that's just pretty empty. And Missouri is one of those places that's pretty empty. Um, so I'm right in... Um, pretty close to the center of the Ozarks, actually, um, which is a, a really cool bit of country, um, but which my organization owns quite a bit of. And, um, and so the, uh, uh, the work we do here is basically to restore natural communities within the Ozarks. Um, but so as far as uh, my living situation, I currently live in a um, adequate house. Uh, so I, li I live in a house with, with six guys, um, and the majority of the house is actually given over to the fire engines. Uh, there's basically four rooms, including the bathroom um, and the kitchen, uh, to to fit all of us, um, which is not terribly bad because, to be honest, we're in the field most of the time. Um, because our field sites are spread all over the state, and because the state isn't small, in order to fit our work into a standard 40-hour work week, we have to basically we leave. Um, often, you know, at five in the morning or, or maybe six in the morning on Monday and drive for three hours to a site. And then we'll work until a half an hour before sundown, then set up tents and crash for the night and wake up at six the next morning or wherever the sun comes up and do it again. And we just keep on doing that until we have, you know, 37 hours and then drive home. Um, and that frequently means that we have four or five days off at a time. 
um, because it's hard to get, if you're working sun up to sundown, it's hard to get more than uh, three or four days before you simply run out of hours in the week. Right. So um, you camp out during then, your work portion. Yep. Yep. I am. Uh, I was, this was kind of job where in the, uh, you know, like required sections, you need to have a tent in order to take this job. <laughs> um, and the subject is you need to have a pretty comfortable tent and you really should have a sub zero sleeping bag. Um, and if you're not comfortable, if you're not okay with simply not showering for four days, you should probably look for work elsewhere. Um, but that's, that's just sort of part and parcel to it. And again, this is it's the difference between the prescribed world and the wildland world is in the wildland fire communities, you're on for minimum two weeks. Um, and maybe up to three weeks, um, without a break and doing 16 hour days, every single one of those days. Um, and that's just, you know, it's an effective use of the time and, and, the, and the resources. It looks brutal. Um, but it is, it is uh, kind of what needs to happen in order to control, uh, some of the, the scarier wildland fires. Right. Right. Um, so for me, I do my, you know, my 40 hours of work. Um, and then very likely, like I said, I'm off for quite a while after that. Um, and that's, of course, we have a burn window. Um, so like I mentioned, you know, everything happens when the prescription allows it to happen. And the prescription can be narrow enough that you simply can't, when it, when it, when it finally comes up, when it's a, a, a day happens that you can start a fire, you start a fire. Um, and, and so you, you hustle to get there and you get it started because it may not happen again for a couple of weeks right. and you have so many fires that you need to happen, have occur in order to make this whole thing worth it. Um, and so we, you know, uh, will, we are certainly capable of working 60 or 70 hours in a week. Um, but it, it doesn't happen often. And the way it normally happens is we work 40 hours as absolutely quickly as we can. And then, you know, go home and, clean all our clothes that are absolutely filthy and then and, and stretch and, and work out and try not to try to, try to clean the, the gunk out of our tents and things like that. Um, but it works. It's, it, it's, it's uh, basically uh, very long hours when we're on and then plenty of free time when we're not. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's really interesting. I feel like you must have a very like Jekyll and Hyde sort of life. Like when you come back to the house that you live in with the other guys, you have the internet and stuff like that. And yet then you'll go out in the wilderness for four days. I assume probably a lot of times like without the internet mm -hmm. and stuff. And it's probably a lot of like going to bed early, waking up really early. And, and like, I guess tell us about like that portion of your life when you're out there for like four days and you're done. And now it's still only like, especially now during the winter, it's like, it can get, you know, dark yeah. at like five or something. And it's like, well, yeah. I'm not going to go to bed at five. Like, do you just sit there and, yeah. and like talk with all the guys? Like, does someone bring a guitar? Like, what are you doing every night? Uh, we, we thought about it. We actually, we, we've, we've tossed around the idea of bringing a guitar and then it sort of died because, you know, the, sort of the, the reality of it is that while that might be really fun, it might also be incredibly annoying. And so we, we go out of our way not to step on each other's toes. Yeah, yeah. Big one. Um, and so, you know, it, some nights if there's a fair bit of wind, we'll, we'll basically circle the wagons with the engine and sort of put all the, the tents close to the engine so that they're not getting ripped off the face of the earth and scattered um, by the wind. But uh, other nights we will spread out as much as humanly possible within the unit um, just so that, you know, the illusion of privacy, even though it's nothing but air uh, between you and the next guy who's, you know, 50 yards away. <laughs> yeah. um, the worst thing you mentioned is the internet. Um, where I currently live, I do not have the internet. No mobile internet. Um, I have a, a pretty, um, a unsurprisingly not great internet connection. But you know, if you 
if you drive a couple hundred miles into other parts of the state, lo and behold, there is 4G coverage. So I'm in a different situation where I actually, it's easier for me to check my email when I'm in a tent than it is in, if I'm in my bed. Okay, gotcha. Um, which is, it's just a, it's a, it's a really weird way to live, but it's in certain ways I'm it's like, oh yeah, you know, all the comforts of home. Like I, it's easier for me to stream a Netflix show in a tent than it is in a bed. Um, which is <laughs> a little strange. So you still partake in stuff huh. like that. You haven't, you're not just like full blown nature, man. You don't like what's Netflix and no, like I don't have a Facebook account and stuff like that. Like you still keep up with the modern world. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, a couple of our crew, uh, the, the crew I'm on, uh, joke about being really bad millennials uh, because they, they actually don't have Facebook. Or I suspect actually what they mean is they don't use Facebook. But it's, um, it's that's just pervasive. I mean, it, it's pretty much everywhere. Uh, you know, the content that people consume is not going to change just because they spend half the time in the woods um, or more than half the time in the woods. Uh, I probably watch a lot less Netflix. Um, and you know, I, I, I say, oh, I read more books. I'm like, yeah, but I read them on a Kindle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. At the end of the day, like there, there's the there's the, the technological tentacles I've, have already gone and gotten into everything. Um, and like I said, you know, half the time I am not in the complete middle of nowhere. Now that said, um, in other situations, um, it might be that you're in really truly the middle of nowhere because that's where these burdens can happen. And so, yeah, of course, you're going to adapt your lifestyle to to to, uh, to fit whatever your conditions are. And that's actually sort of, sort of the big thing is I have lived in a lot of very different places over the years, and I've just had to sort of adapt to whatever the situation is. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. Right now, the town I live in, there are two bars. Um, I have already decided which one is the one I go to. Um, but that's it for, for nightlife. There's, there's exactly two, and I've chosen my one. And that's, that's the adaptation for this very small town. But in other places it was, you know, you could, I was living in Maryland and, and so I was like, well, I need to get myself a kayak clearly. Like I need to, I need to find a kayak because that's what everyone does. They go kayaking in the summertime. Like, well, I should do that too. Um, you know, that's just what the population in the area did. Um, or I lived on Cape Cod and I started, uh, I got really interested in oysters and ended up oyster farming for a while, sort of in the spare time because it was good money and I knew some people, um, and it was what people did. Um, and yeah, so moving fairly frequently for work, which is sort of the, uh, the big downside to this job is that the innings are short, um, means that you have to be able to adapt to new environments pretty quickly. That's super um, cool to get to pick up different hobbies with, that are, uh, like with the area that you're living. Yeah. I, I do miss surfing. The middle of the country, definitely not so much with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, for but, sure. Uh, yeah, new new things. There's this great mountain biking around here, and and, and uh, we're t- we've been talking about on one of these five day breaks, uh, taking a bunch of the, the canoes that are uh, around the cache and go doing like a three or four day camping canoe trip. Uh, we just gotta look at the weather and and hope for something where it's over forty for a couple days in a row because that could be pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, and no one else is on the river at the moment, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, so those, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, there's a mix of isolation and not isolation. I think you were right in that it's, it's definitely not typical in that, uh, uh, there's, there was one, I had one conservation job my entire life that was nine to five and it was great. Um, uh, it was, it was fantastic. And I, I, that, that schedule is just so freeing. And as much as that, that's not a great thing to say, I'm sure a lot of people are like, well, what are you talking about? 
but it's, it, you're just done at five o'clock and that's really nice. Um, walk, work walking in the door at 10 o'clock at night because you've been traveling for three hours. is really a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but on the other side, I do get to play outside every day, so I can't really complain about that at all. Yeah. Which parlays perfectly into the end of this interview, Tyler. Uh, if you could give some advice for someone that would like your lifestyle and that would really like to be outdoors all the time like you, what advice would you give to somebody to get a job like yours? Right. So um, college education helps, but it's not necessary. Um, if you're going to get a college education and you're going to do coursework in it, uh, look specifically for a degree within natural resources management or environmental science or forestry or something that sounds like one of those things. Um, there are many jobs that involve or uh, of degrees that involve ecology, and they are um, they're good suited for some jobs, and they're less well suited for other conservation jobs. Uh, whereas natural resources management, uh, environmental science, and forestry are very much sort of the hand they, they, it's the hands on focus. Um, and those those it's all branding, I suppose, but those are the brands that kind of get you noticed with those specific things. Um, and take this from someone who majored in biology, which did not help me yeah. get noticed. Um, the second big thing is, so college education or not, um, there are a lot of people who want to do this. Um, and so competition can be really fierce, especially for anything that's paid. Um, one way to get around this is volunteer experience. Um, most large conservation nonprofits will have volunteer opportunities available to you. Um, and that looks great on a resume, no matter what. Um, additionally, uh, you can do exactly what I did, which was I served for a year with AmeriCorps after doing a couple of different internships with different uh, government organizations. Um, and AmeriCorps was an absolutely fantastic idea for the specifics of what I wanted to do with my, uh, my career. Um, uh, there's a bunch of different, uh, member programs in AmeriCorps and there's the, uh, sort of the, uh, the more firefighter actually groups that travel around doing conservation work as a conservation corps. Um, and those are, I think, largely just really good ideas. Um, generally speaking, they take about a year. They give you a stipend. Your food and housing are pretty much taken care of. And there's frequently an education award for completing the program, which uh, followed into the next big stage for me, which was, uh, for me anyway, I, after AmeriCorps, I went and I went to grad school uh, for environmental conservation. Um, and so picking up a master's in that, was what finally let me push into more science-based conservation jobs. Um, and so, as I've mentioned, I, I do a lot of mapping type work. And so my uh, real focus is kind of the spatial aspects of conservation. So I make maps that show how different, well, mostly at the moment I make burning maps, but I've made a lot of maps showing different plant communities and, uh, and different habitat restoration techniques and, and how they affect things. Um, and that is another thing that is very helpful and useful and something that people who are interested in the field should look into is um, using GIS, uh, all right, GIS software um, to further their goals. But yeah, so, so the short version is you don't have to have a college education or a master's degree, but it helps. You don't have to volunteer, but it really helps. Um, and, you know, it, it's a... I know my, my crew members who are working within the federal government most of the time, they are putting out somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 applications a day. Uh, cool. So understand that that is, that, that is the, what, you're, what you're up against. Um, and, and that's what you kind of have to do if you want work within the sphere. It, it's very competitive and you need to be willing to move. Yeah, which is important yeah. to know. Yeah, a lot of moving around. 
Yep, yep, yep. Cool, good deal. Tyler, man, this has been yeah. so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this with us. Yeah, happy to help. Thank you very much for having me. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.